Chapter Nineteen of the House of a Thousand Candles by Meredith Nicholson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I meet an old friend. When I reached the house, I found to my astonishment that the window I had left open as I scrambled out the night before was closed. I dropped my bag and crept to the front door, thinking that if Bates had discovered my absence, it was useless to attempt any further deception. I was amazed to find the great doors of the main entrance flung wide, and in real alarm I ran through the hall and back to the library. The nearest door stood open, and as I peered in a curious scene disclosed itself. A few of the large cathedral candles still burned brightly in several places, their flame rising strangely in the grey morning light. Books had been taken from the shelves and scattered everywhere, and sharp implements had cut ugly gashes in the shelving. The drawers containing sketches and photographs had been pulled out and their contents thrown about and trampled underfoot. The house was as silent as a tomb, but as I stood on the threshold trying to realize what had happened, something stirred by the fireplace, and I crept forward, listening until I stood by the long table beneath the great chandelier. Again I heard a sound as of some animal walking and stretching, followed by a moan that was undoubtedly human. Then the hands of a man clutched the farther edge of the table, and slowly and evidently with infinite difficulty a figure rose, and the dark face of Bates, with eyes blurred and staring strangely, confronted me. He drew his body to its height, and leaned heavily upon the table. I snatched a candle and bent toward him to make sure my eyes were not tricking me. "'Mr. Glenarm! Mr. Glenarm!' he exclaimed in broken whispers. "'It is Bates, sir.' "'What have you done? What has happened?' I demanded. He put his hand to his head uncertainly, and gaped as though trying to gather his wits. He was evidently dazed by whatever had occurred, and I sprang around and helped him to a couch. He would not lie down, but sat up, staring and passing his hand over his head. It was rapidly growing lighter, and I saw a purple and black streak across his temple where a bludgeon of some sort had struck him. "'What does this mean, Bates? Who's been in the house?' "'I can't tell you, Mr. Glenarm.' "'Can't tell me. You will tell me, or go to jail. There's been mischief done here, and I don't intend to have any nonsense about it from you. Well?' He was clearly suffering, but in my anger at the sight of the wreck of the room I grasped his shoulder and shook him roughly. "'It was early this morning,' he faltered. "'About two o'clock I heard noises in the lower part of the house. I came down thinking likely it was you, and remembering that you had been sick yesterday.' "'Yes, go on.' The thought of my truancy was no balm to my conscience just then. "'As I came into the hall, I saw lights in the library. As you weren't down last night, the room hadn't been lighted at all. I heard steps, and someone tapping with a hammer.' "'Yes, a hammer. Go on.' It was then the same old story. The war had been carried openly into the house, but Bates— just why should anyone connected with the conspiracy injure Bates, who stood so near to Pickering, its leader? The fellow was undoubtedly hurt. There was no mistaking the lump on his head. He spoke with a painful difficulty that was not assumed, I felt increasingly sure, as he went on. I saw a man pulling out the books and tapping the inside of the shelves. He was working very fast, and the next thing I knew he let in another man through one of the terrace doors, the one there that still stands a little open. He flinched as he turned slightly to indicate it, and his face twitched with pain. "'Never mind that. Tell the rest of your story.' 
Then I ran in, grabbed one of the big candelabra from the table, and went for the nearest man. They were about to begin on the chimney-breast there. It was Mr. Glenarm's pride in all the house, and that accounts for my being there in front of the fireplace. They rather got the best of me, sir. Clearly I see they did. You had a hand-to-hand -hand fight with them, and being two to one, no, there were two of us. Don't you understand? Two of us. There was another man who came running in from somewhere, and he took sides with me. I thought at first it was you. The robbers thought so too, for one of them yelled, Great God, it's Glenarm! Just like that. But it wasn't you, but quite another person. That's a good story so far. And then what happened? I don't remember much more, except that someone soused me with water that helped my head considerably, and the next thing I knew I was staring across the table there at you. Who are these men, Bates? Speak up quickly. My tone was peremptory. It was, I felt, a crucial moment in our relations. Well, he began deliberately, I dislike to make charges against a fellow man, but I strongly suspect one of the men of being— Yes, tell the whole truth, or it will be the worse for you. I very much fear one of them was Ferguson, the gardener over the way. I am disappointed in him, sir. Very good. And now for the other one. I didn't get my eyes on him. I had closed with Ferguson, and we were having quite a lively time of it, when the other one came in. Then the man who came to my help mixed us all up. He was a very lively person, and what became of Ferguson and the rest of it I don't know. There was food for thought in what he said. He had taken punishment in defence of my property. The crack on his head was undeniable, and I could not abuse him or question his veracity with any grace, not at least without time for investigation and study. However, I ventured to ask him one question. If you were guessing, shouldn't you think it quite likely that Morgan was the other man? He met my gaze squarely. I think it wholly possible, Mr. Glenarm. And the man who helped you? Who in the devil was he? Bless me, I don't know. He disappeared. I'd like mightily to see him again. <laughs> now you'd better do something for your head. I'll summon the village doctor if you say so. No, thank you, sir. I'll take care of it myself. And now we'll keep quiet about this. Don't mention it or discuss it with anyone. Certainly not, sir. He rose and staggered a little, but crossed to the broad mantel-shelf in the great chimney-breast, rested his arm upon it for a moment, passed his hand over the dark wood with a sort of caress, then bent his eyes upon the floor littered with books and drawings and papers torn from the cabinets and all splashed with tallow and wax from the candles. The daylight had increased until the havoc wrought by the night's visitors was fully apparent. The marauders had made a sorry mess of the room, and I thought Bates' lip quivered as he saw the wreck. It would have been a blow to Mr. Glenarm. The room was his pride, his pride, sir. He went out toward the kitchen, and I ran upstairs to my own room. I cursed the folly that had led me to leave my window open, for undoubtedly Morgan and his new ally, St. Agatha's gardener, had taken advantage of it to enter the house. Quite likely, too, they had observed my absence, and this would undoubtedly be communicated to Pickering. I threw open my door and started back with an exclamation of amazement. Standing at my chiffonier between two windows was a man, clad in a bath-gown, my own I saw with fury, his back to me, the razor at his face, placidly shaving himself. Without turning, he addressed me, quite coolly and casually, 
as though his being there was the most natural thing in the world. "'Good morning, Mr. Glenarm. Rather damaging evidence, that costume. I suppose it's the custom of the country for gentlemen in evening clothes to go out by the window and return by the door. You might think the other way around, preferable.' "'Larry!' I shouted. "'Jack! Kick that door shut and lock it!' he commanded in a sharp, severe tone that I remembered well, and just now welcomed in him. "'How? Why and when?' "'Never mind about me. I'm here, thrown the enemy off for a few days, and you give me lessons in current history first while I climb into my armour. Pray pardon the informality.' He seized a broom and began work upon a pair of trousers to which mud and briars clung tenaciously. His coat and hat lay on a chair, they too much the worse for rough wear. There was never any use in refusing to obey Larry's orders, and as he got into his clothes I gave him in as few words as possible— the chief incidents that had marked my stay at Glenarm House. He continued dressing with care, helping himself to a shirt and collar from my chiffonier, and choosing with unfailing eye the best tie in my collection. Now and then he asked a question tersely, or again he laughed or swore direly in Gaelic. When I had concluded the story of Pickering's visit, and of the conversation I overheard between the executor and Bates in the church porch, Larry wheeled round with the scarf half-tied in his fingers, and surveyed me commiseratingly. "'And you didn't rush them both on the spot and have it out?' "'No, I was too much taken aback, for one thing.' "'I dare say you were.' "'And for another, I didn't think the time ripe. I'm going to beat that fellow, Larry, but I want him to show his hand fully before we come to a smash-up. I know as much about the house and its secrets as he does. That's one consolation. Sometimes I don't believe there's a shilling here, and again I'm sure there's a big stake in it.' The fact that Pickering is risking so much to find what's supposed to be hidden here is pretty fair evidence that something's buried on this place. Possibly, but they're giving you a lively boycott. Now where in the devil have you been? Well, I began and hesitated. I had not mentioned Marion Devereux, and this did not seem the time for confidences of that sort. He took a cigarette from his pocket and lighted it. Bah, these women! Under the terms of your revered grandfather's will, you've thrown away all your rights— it looks to me, as a member of the Irish bar in bad standing, as though you delivered yourself up to the enemy, so far as the legal situation is concerned. How does it strike you? Of course I've forfeited my rights, but I don't mean that anyone shall know it yet a while. My lad, don't deceive yourself. Everybody round here will know it before night. You ran off, left your window open invitingly, and two gentlemen who meditated breaking in found that they needn't take the trouble. One came in through your own room, noting, of course, your absence, let in his friend below, and tore up the place regrettably. Yes, but how did you get here, if you don't mind telling? It's a short story. That little chap from Scotland Yard who annoyed me so much in New York and drove me to Mexico, for which may he dwell forever in fiery torment, has never given up. I shook him off, though, at Indianapolis three days ago. I bought a ticket for Pittsburgh with him at my elbow— I suppose he thought the chase was growing tame, and that the farther east he could arrest me, the nearer I should be to a British consul in Tidewater. I went ahead of him into the station, and out to the Pittsburgh sleeper. I dropped my bag into my section, if that's what they call it in your atrocious American language, looked out and saw him coming along the platform. Just then the car began to move. They were shunting it about to attach a sleeper that had been brought in from Louisville, and my carriage, or whatever you call it, went skimming out of the sheds into a yard where everything seemed to be most noisy and complex. I dropped off in the dark just before they began to haul the carriage back. A long train of empty goods wagons was just pulling out, and I threw my bag into a wagon and climbed after it. 
We kept going for an hour or so until I was thoroughly lost. Then I took advantage of a stop at a place that seemed to be the end of terrestrial things, got out and started across country. I expressed my bag to you the other day from a town that rejoiced in the cheering name of Kokomo, just to get rid of it. I walked into Annandale about midnight, found this medieval marvel through the kindness of the station-master, and was reconnoitring with my usual caution when I saw a gentleman romantically entering through an open window. Larry paused to light a fresh cigarette. You always did have a way of arriving opportunely. Go on. It pleased my fancy to follow him, and by the time I had studied your diggings here a trifle, things began to happen below. It sounded like a St. Patrick's Day celebration in an Irish village, and I went down at a gallop to see if there was any chance of breaking in. Have you seen the room? Well, he gave several turns to his right wrist, as though to test it. We all had a jolly time there by the fireplace. Another chap had got in somewhere, so there were two of them. Your man, I suppose it's your man, was defending himself gallantly with a large thing of brass that looked like the pipes of a grand organ, and I sailed in with a chair. My presence seemed to surprise the attacking party, who evidently thought I was you. Flattering, I must say, to me. You undoubtedly saved Bates' life, and prevented the rifling of the house. And after you had poured water on Bates, he's the servant, you came up here. That's the way of it. You're a brick, Larry Donovan. There's only one of you. And now, and now, John Glenarm, we've got to get down to business. Or you must, as for me, after a few hours of your enlivening society. You don't go a step until we go together. No, by the beard of the prophet. I have a fight on here, and I'm going to win if I die in the struggle. And you've got to stay with me to the end. But under the will you dare not take a border. Of course I dare. That will's as though it had never been, as far as I'm concerned. My grandfather never expected me to sit here alone and be murdered. John Marshall Glenarm wasn't a fool, exactly. No, but a trifle queer, I should say. I don't have to tell you, old man, that this situation appeals to me. It's my kind of a job. If it were that the hounds are at my heels, I'd like to stay with you. But you have enough trouble on hands without opening the house to an attack by my enemies. Stop talking about it. I don't propose to be deserted by the only friend I have in the world when I'm up to my eyes in trouble. Let's go down and get some coffee. We found Bates trying to remove the evidences of the night's struggle. He had fastened a cold pack about his head and limped slightly. Otherwise he was the same, silent and inexplicable. Daylight had not improved the appearance of the room. Several hundred books lay scattered over the floor, and the shelves which had held them were hacked and broken. Bates, if you can give us some coffee, let the room go for the present. Yes, sir. And Bates. He paused, and Larry's keen eyes were bent sharply upon him. Mr. Donovan is a friend who will be with me for some time. We'll fix up his room later in the day. He limped out, Larry's eyes following him. What do you think of that fellow? I asked. Larry's face wore a puzzled look. What do you call him? Bates? He's a plucky fellow. Larry picked up from the hearth the big candelabrum with which Bates had defended himself. It was badly bent and twisted, and Larry grinned. The fellow who went out through the front door probably isn't feeling very well today. Your man was swinging this thing like a windmill. I can't understand it, I muttered. I can't, for the life of me, see why he should have given battle to the enemy. They all belong to Pickering, and Bates is the biggest rascal of the bunch. Hmm. We'll consider that later. And would you mind telling me what kind of a tallow foundry this is? I never saw so many candlesticks in my life. I seem to taste tallow. 
I had no letters from you, and I supposed you were loafing quietly in a grim farmhouse, dying of ennui, and here you are in an establishment that ought to be the imperial residence of an Eskimo chief. Possibly you have crude petroleum for soup and whipped salad oil for dessert. I declare a man living here ought to attain a high candle power of luminosity. It's perfectly immense. He stared and laughed. And hidden treasure in night attacks and young virgins in the middle distance? Yes, I'd really like to stay a while. As we ate breakfast, I filled in gaps I had left in my hurried narrative, with relief that I cannot describe filling my heart as I leaned again upon the sympathy of an old and trusted friend. As Bates came and went, I marked Larry's scrutiny of the man. I dismissed him as soon as possible that we might talk freely. "'Take it up and down and all around. What do you think of all this?' I asked. Larry was silent for a moment. He was not given to careless speech in personal matters. "'There's more to it than frightening you off or getting your grandfather's money. It's my guess that there's something in this house that somebody, Pickering supposedly, is very anxious to find.' "'Yes, I begin to think so. He could come in here legally if it were merely a matter of searching for lost assets.' "'Yes, and whatever it is must be well hidden. As I remember, your grandfather died in June.' You got a letter calling you home in October. It was sent out blindly, with not one chance in a hundred that it would ever reach me. To be sure, you were a wanderer on the face of the earth, and there was nobody in America to look after your interests. You may be sure that the place was thoroughly ransacked while you were sailing home. I'll wager you the best dinner you ever ate, that there's more at stake than your grandfather's money. The situation is inspiring. I grow interested. I'm almost persuaded to linger." End of chapter 19